Hello, everyone. What day is it today? It is Wednesday, June 10th. There we are. Wednesday, June 10th, uh, 2015. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is the Promotional Law Practice Live Chat. I believe episode 142, if I'm not mistaken, and I don't believe that at least this time I am. I think I got the day and the year right, so doing pretty good. Uh, today on the live chat, on the podcast, what will we talk about? We will talk about your questions surrounding UFC 188. Uh, surrounding anything that happened from this past weekend, UFC Fight Night 58, or excuse me, 68, uh, with Dan Henderson and Tim Boach. Um, we'll talk about Gilbert Melendez versus Eddie Alvarez. Lots and lots to get to. Andre Pettineris' comments about the Reebok deal in support of it. Uh, Brendan Schaub's comments about the Reebok deal, essentially saying there's no more financial incentive to fight anymore, and things like that. So, um, and anything else in between you want to talk about, we'll get to everything. Best place to do that, of course, is on MMAfighting.com. Green comments, because they get three recs, get priority, but not exclusivity. I also look at the Twitter machine. You can get at me on Twitter, at SBN Luke Thomas. Um, today's drink, not officially, but of course, is partly brought to you by the, uh, the taste of Robitussin, only sweeter. <laughs> Diet Barks, because that's what they have in the fridge here. Uh, also, shouts to, see this. Amateur, or excuse me, not amateur, American Muay Thai League. It's a Muay Thai League here in, uh, not just D.C., but like the Northeast, so like New York, mid-Atlantic, basically, is what I would say, up to New York, and a bunch of my teammates fight in that league. So, uh, shouts to them. They put on a good show. All right. Uh, with that out of the way, oh, so when I put that up, share this on Twitter. Share it on Facebook. It's video. The MMA fighting post. Just, just let folks know you're watching when you see this face, whether live or at some point later on down the line, uh, even though I have slept poorly and I need a haircut and I bike to work today, so I have sweat like Patrick Ewing in uh, Game 7 of the uh, Eastern Conference Finals. Um, let folks know you're watching. All right. With that out of the way, let's get to the comments. All right. First up. And thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. All right, first up, question. Luke, why Gustafson? Let's forget about the what's fair and who deserves it arguments. What is the commercial benefit to making Gustafson the number one contender? Could there have been a title shot clause in his last contract when they were still high on the idea of a Jones rematch, which might explain why he took the risk of fighting Rumble if the UFC said, fill a stadium for us and we'll give you the Jones rematch? Um, no, I doubt there's any kind of clause. I don't think the UFC would ever hamper themselves in that kind of way, absent any prevailing need or you know strong arm tactic by the fighter. And I don't think Gustafson's that kind of guy. But um, I, I didn't think it would be such a commercial disaster to have Ryan Bader, or at least not a fight worth not making. I don't think that Bader would necessarily do the same kind of business that Gustafson would do, um, but not so dissimilar that, you know, there was like an obvious need to put Gustafson there. Um, I think it's pretty obvious, right? He's a guy who's fought in, in major UFC headline uh, headlining fights, um, gave John Jones his toughest fight, whatever you want to make of that. Um, I don't agree. Some people think he beat Jones, but you at least could acknowledge he gave him a very, very tough battle. Uh, headline the card in Sweden. And I think Chuck Mendenhall had brought up before the fact that he is European and Swedish as a burgeoning market. That sort of enhances his appeal. 
um, for growth in, in, in Europe. Ryan Bader does nothing for them in that capacity. Um, there's, you know, he was on the cover of the EA game. So there's just a little bit more enthusiasm around Alexander Gustafson. And I think most people would say, or at least not most, but at least many people would say, um, just in terms of casual fan visibility, who do you know more? And I think there might be a lot of data to suggest. I'm, I, I don't know this to be certain, but it feels like, look, you can disagree with the UFC's error here or their choice or however you want to characterize it, but I have a hard time believing they made it absent some, some reason, right? And I, when I say some reason, I mean some reason backed by some kind of um, quantitative data. They must have some kind of data on, uh, this is just conjecture, but anytime you really peel back the layers a little bit, um, when, when it comes to UFC decisions, very rarely does it ever happen where they're just guessing. I mean, there is some measure of of betting involved, not like gambling. I mean, you know, wagering one thing might happen over another or what the risk and reward might be. And that's all imprecise, but um, there's just, I think there's already some anecdotal evidence to believe that Gustafson is a, is a bigger draw and that it sets them up down the line for a John Jones rematch. If he can beat Daniel Cormier, if he can't, there's Daniel Cormier in time to fight John Jones. So there's just a lot of reasons, both in the ability to sell versus Daniel Cormier, and then the ability to sell whoever wins that fight should John Jones return, which also gives you an indication about when they think Jones might actually, in fact, return. Let's see. But I, I wasn't like if they had made the Bader fight, I wasn't going to be mad at it. Like I wasn't, I never thought that fight sucked or you know wasn't my favorite thing in the world. But it wasn't so toxic that I couldn't stomach the idea of it. There's a lot of reasons why it was okay. Smaller cage. This weekend's fights were unprecedented. Or they were unprecedented. They were just good. And the number of first-round finishes were amazing. How much of this do you think was due to the smaller cage? Should they employ this more in the future? Um, I'm a big believer in the smaller cage. So as you cover this on Monday Morning Analyst. Uh, I, won't, I, won't get, I won't get too far into it because it's true. I did cover it on the, on the previous podcast. But, but suffice it to say, there's data that supports this. Reed Kuhn from Fightnomics has actually done the homework. There's data to suggest that the closer narrowing of the cage uh, produces more finishes and forces more action. And then just sort of intuitively, that makes sense as well. If you have less move, you know, space to move around, you're going to be forced to engage more. Um, I think what was interesting for me, though, was that you didn't see a lot of cage wrestling. You saw some cage wrestling, but you go back and you watch these European events, for example, where the level of wrestling is, you know, frankly abysmal. And there's just so much time spent. And again, the last Mexico card too. That's why I'm dreading some of the undercard of this coming weekend. Like Verdun versus Kane is everything you could ask a, a card to be, or at least a, a main event. It's, it's a great, great main event. But I mean, some of these regional guys, and, and uh, frankly speaking, the international cards, you know, they're just, they're, they're like cage warrior level shows with like UFC fights sprinkled on top. That's just the reality of it. Um, the guys who are sub UFC, but like you know, technically in the UFC, there's just so much bad cage wrestling. I, 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 I had it. I definitely was a bit underwhelmed heading into that card, um, partly because I gave it short shrift, which I should not have. The other part, though, that I think you just have to go and ask yourself now is: 
if the UFC is going to use a smaller cage, they should, like, I don't know. Part of me feels like, they, again, they, they have this, like, appeal to uniformity. You know, we want the rules the same every time. And I, 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 I certainly understand the, the need for homogeneity, not so much in product, but in standards and expectations and trimmings and architecture. I, under, I understand that. You, want, you don't want the product to be so dissimilar every time that fans get confused. But at the same time, you this is a crazy sport built on crazy things that happen. And when you throw curveballs in there, interesting ones, ones that from a data perspective have proven to be enhancers for finishes, I think that's something you should tout. Now, whether that gets more people to watch, you know, I don't know. But certainly I think I think the bigger case here, with the, if you look at the ratings, was Dan Henderson being involved, who still has a fair degree of fan appeal. Um, but... But yeah, I, I think it plays a huge, huge role. All I mean to say is I want to compliment the fighters by not by acknowledging the lack of cage wrestling as sort of noting I think that the smaller cage incontestably contributed, but credit to the guys who, who fought that they they didn't use the confined space to restrict their own movement. All right. Separating the fighter from the person. Greatest of days once more. After watching both Suarez and Solo, Luis Suarez and Hope Solo, shine this past weekend, I found myself pondering on how sometimes athletes' off-field actions, or I guess with Suarez, on-field actions, affect how their on-field actions are viewed, and in some cases their on-field actions are ignored because of how respected they are. Thus, out of curiosity, I was wondering how, as a professional sport journalist, who probably knows a lot more about the fighters than most, have you ever found your opinion of a fighter's performance affected by what you know of them personally and how do you safeguard against something like that um yeah it's tough i again i i you know you can make up what you want i'm no longer at the stage where like i'm a fan of fighters partly because it's not my job to do that and, and in fact it would be problematic if it was my job now there are certainly guys just speaking as an observer of the sport who i enjoy watching more than others i think that's a natural thing that happens um and that probably to some degree affects my analysis or um, views of certain cards or whatever the case may be, but but um, I'm not sure when it happened. I don't I don't expect. I, I wrote about this on my Facebook page because Keith Olbermann was calling for Hope Solo to be suspended until I guess whatever legal issues she has are fully resolved. Um, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. I don't think it's I, I don't I don't have a strong opinion either way. I don't know if it's the right call. I don't know if it's not the right call. A big part of me feels like, sure, you know, um, these are probably, there's, there's a fair amount of evidence to suggest that Hope Solo is a despicable person and is, you know, um, a liability, both in her, your ability to trust her and your willingness to want to do business with her um, as a player on the U.S. national team. And at the same time, another part of me is like, she hasn't been convicted of anything. Um, I don't really, I, I, not that I don't care what she does outside of the cage, but it's just not something I, I don't expect them to be model citizens. I don't, I, I'm much more of a believer in the Ty Cobb kind of athlete than I am the, you know, Russell Wilson kind of athlete. So, um, so I don't know. I don't have a strong argument. If someone could persuade me to say that I'm supposed to care deeply, I mean, Floyd Mayweather seems like a really reprehensible person and, and him, him had got to the point where I was having legitimately second thoughts about covering them uh, and still do. But I thought that the Pacquiao fight was so big that um, yeah, I was sort of missing the forest for the trees. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. He also has served his time. Now, to what extent he's actually been, you know, under the long arm of 
real justice is up for debate. But so I don't know. It's a good question. Um, but I don't. When you meet most of these fighters, like they're not my friends, man. Like they're not. I don't consider them friends. So I don't consider them enemies. Um, but I don't consider them colleagues necessarily. I'm friendlier with some than others. Some I know better than others. Um, but I don't call up any fighters just to chat. I don't hang out with them. Um, if you just, you know, if you don't count the guys in my gym, but they're not UFC fighters or even Bellator or World Series fighting fighters. So you get the idea. Um, yeah, I don't, I, it's a, it's a, I think some people are really gung ho about it and others are not. And I've yet to be swayed. I think I've yet to be swayed in a way where, I mean, if someone's like really, truly bad, like a war machine where, you know, they're a threat to the public. I mean, it's a totally different conversation, but in the case of Hope Solo, she may be, cause she's certainly a bellicose individual, but, um, I wish I had a stronger answer for you. I wish I had a more principled stance, but I just don't, I just don't really, it's not right now, but it's one that I'm having to think more about as, as each day passes. And, but suffice to say that, and I know I've already used that bit of language, but all I'm trying to point out is the more I get to know these fighters, I'm not saying that they're all reprehensible or bad people or that you shouldn't like them or if you were in my position, you'd feel the same. Maybe if you were in my position, you'd realize you wouldn't want to be a journalist and you would want to work with them and, and you would want to be in PR or something like that. I don't know. Everyone's got a different perspective. I just think for me... Um, I definitely, definitely, I don't get like butterflies talking to them. Um, I don't view them in some like godly light. I certainly have a tremendous amount of respect for what they are able to do athletically. I don't, that has never wavered. But in terms of my interpersonal reaction, uh, you know, in terms of my interactions with them, I keep them very Chinese wall in between, you know. <clears throat> Benil Dariush. It was announced last week that Benil Dariush will face Michael Johnson at UFC Fight Night Nashville in August. If he wins, which I think he will, he'll be a fight away from fighting for the title with Johnson being ranked five at lightweight. However, his training partner, Rafael Dos Anjos, is the current champion, and because of it, Dariush has talked about moving up to welterweight. I know there's a lot of ifs, but if Dariush wins, should he really move up to welterweight? He's made it so far at lightweight, unless you want to avoid the teammate versus teammate disaster as seen at World Series of Fighting. Um, first of all, it's a fantastic fight. I, I have a hard time. He is a big lightweight, but he would be a very small welterweight. You get guys like Johnny Hendricks who are, you know, plus 200 coming down. That seems to me a terrible idea to want to go up there, even for understandable reasons of not wanting to challenge your stablemate which would create all kinds of problems about training and um, your career and your livelihood and, and lots of other things. Um, plus, I'm not sure how much I would fancy Bar Dariush's chances against Dos Anjos. I bet they both have a pretty clear understanding of what their abilities are. Dariush is really, really good on the ground, but I don't know that if I'm in an MMA context, he is so massively better that he can have his way with Dos Anjos. Um, like, for example, if they competed in the gi in sport jiu-jitsu, I would definitely favor Dariush because I would favor Dariush's ability to pull guard, get a sweep, get the two points, come out on top, pass guard, get the back, you know, something. I would, I would favor his ability to win on points. But when you're winning on points, people like, you know, I'm not asking you to like that style of jiu-jitsu. I'm just trying to articulate to you. There's a reason why points are there. 
And the reason why points are there is because the, the difference between two guys at the very top is often minimal. Very hard to measure. So it may just be that one guy got a sweep or that they, they both got sweeps and then one guy wins on advantages. That's why you need those things. You may not like that system, but it doesn't exist by accident. So that's, to me, the kind of difference in jiu-jitsu that we're talking about between Darius and Dos Anjos. It's not, it's not a categorical difference, really. Uh, in an MMA context, you know, I, the better scrambler, the better wrestler of the two might be Dos Anjos. So maybe he knows that it's not something he's even ready to fight for, even if they weren't in the same stable. So I don't know. I, don't, I would recommend that he keep taking fights at lightweight. I would not recommend moving up to welterweight um, because even losses there might hamper his ability to be a lightweight contender. I would wait to see what happens with, with Dos Anjos because, you know, with Habib around the corner, I still favor his chances to win that title very heavily. Uh, Verdun, Fedor, and Kane. Which would be the biggest achievement? Verdun beating Fedor back in June of 2010 or beating Kane this coming Saturday in 2015? Um, I would probably say beating Kane. Now, certainly beating uh, Fedor back when he did was a fairly, a fairly impressive thing. But I'm a firm believer that by the time Fedor fought in strike force, he was past his prime. Now, not over the hill, not terrible, not, um, you know, not an elite fighter, but not prime Fedor. I, I, I firmly believe that. I think prime Fedor was the one who fought in 2004. Um, that, to me, was the, was the best one. When was the Krokop fighters? 2004, right? I don't remember my dates anymore. Let's see. Fedor fought Krokop in 2005, excuse me, 2005. There's your prime Fedor right there. But by the time he, you know, by the time he fought Verdun all the way in June of 2010, I just think he was a lesser version of himself. I didn't think he had quite the zip and pop on his movement. Um, I thought the game had kind of caught up a little bit, you know, so not to say that's not a tremendous, tremendous achievement again, because you're still an elite, elite heavyweight. Um, but it wasn't. Kane is such a different animal. Kane is uh, bigger in size. You know, has all the different things. We know what the kind of game that Kane brings. And yes, he's been on injury, and yes, he's not quite a spring chicken either. But he, well, there's no evidence to suggest right now that he's past his prime. And so, therefore, to me, if you're Verdun, who's also older, I mean, he's five years, you know, he's in his late 30s, right? Mid to late 30s. So, for him to be this far into his career and to beat someone as advanced in skill and athleticism and size um, within their prime as Velasquez, that to me would be a little bit more impressive um, than, than a, a, you know, a past your prime fiddle-millionaire. Luke, how did you score the first two rounds of Tavares versus Ortega fight? I heard that the three judges were all over the place on this one. I don't know. I actually didn't score it in my brain or even in retrospect. Here's what I would say. I had a feeling by the third round that Ortega was winning. I thought that the damage he was doing underneath was better than the damage that was coming on top. He was threatening with submissions the entire time. Uh, obviously, those elbows were tremendous. Um, getting the sweep 
from the like the Granby roll sweep that he had. It was like a modified waiter sweep. Almost, no, excuse me, not a modified waiter. A modified flower sweep that he hit on uh, Tavares was just was just tremendous, treme- tremendous stuff. Um, he had Mount for a little while. Um, he got out of Mount. You know, he was out wrestled in that fight. I think someone will say to me his game reminded them of like Nick Diaz and Carlos Condit put together, which I think is pretty fair. Except that in the same sense, it's probably true because he still needs to work on his wrestling. Like Nick Diaz is a tremendous talent, as is Carlos Condit. But, you know, wrestling is not necessarily the strong point of their game. Although I think their takedown defense is a little bit unfairly criticized. But whatever, you get the idea. Wrestling is certainly a component of his game that he needs to work on. He was getting hit with doubles. He was blocking them by the third, but Tavares' entries were slower and at greater distance. Um, he was getting hit with singles. So, like, um, you know, there were certainly either the control positions, the look like the stronger Tavares and the better wrestler Tavares was having some success with. But I think that by that third round, I would at least have given him two rounds for sure, if not all three. And that was such a good fight, man, because so many times you get these two guys who are just like, you know, look, I love Justin Gaethje versus Luis Palomino. Okay, who doesn't love that? I'm not here to tell you that's a fight you should dislike. But come on, like the level of technique in Ortega versus Tavares is just so infinitely higher. Gaethje had some cool things he was doing where he was kneeing the leg in close and dirty boxing. And okay, cool, fine. Uh, And then he was like low kicking from the clinch. The, those are some neat things that he did. But generally speaking, that was a bite down on the mouthpiece and go kind of thing. And I just don't think uh, I, that to me is just not the kind of thing that you look back on the year. And you're like, that's the best the year had to offer. Like that was the most fun the year might have had to offer. That was the most wild, crazy, hard to replicate kind of thing. No doubt about it. But fight of the year? I don't know, man. Wild, there's this tendency in MMA where like wild brawls are what we look back on fondly. And I look back on crazy pitched battles with momentum swings by two guys using technique that works on each other. That's That, to me, is a much greater indication of fight of the year. Rematch with Jones. Luke Gustafson getting the title shot. Which fight are you more excited to see? Jones Gustafson 2 or Jones Cormier 2? Uh Everyone's got a different perspective. I, I think Jones will have an easy time with Gustafson the second time around. And will probably win the se- second fight with Cormier, but I like Cormier's chances much more the second time around. Um, I don't like him to win outright. I still like Jones to win outright. But I think that Cormier 2 versus Gustafson 2, for me, is a little bit more interesting. But that's just me. Mm, diet barks. That is gross. And there's a donk outside their office talking loudly on his phone who I would like to body slam. Discrediting black belts. I know it's hard to remember because it was forever ago, but a lot of people were hating on Kane DC's belt promotions in the UFC 166 primetime series. Well, Kane got black belt. DC only went to brown. Is it silly to compare Kane's black belt BJJ to Verdum's? I think a key factor in a lot of breakdowns for this fight is Verdum's guard neutralizing the threat of Kane's wrestling, meaning Kane will have to win standing and against the cage. Wait. Is it silly to compare Kane's black belt and BJJ to Verdum's? Yeah. And straight up jujitsu? Yeah, it's nuts. Verdum would handle him. 
uh, in straight up jujitsu, gi or no gi, I suspect. But this isn't straight up jujitsu. This is MMA. So in that sense, I think we're going to see it. I think we're going to see it. I think Verdum is going to get his guard tested here for sure. Now, for me, I would want no part of that guard. And I'm sure Verdum feels quite comfortable there. He's got great, great striking defense. He's got a lot of different forms of control. But I like Velasquez's ability. Velasquez, you know who, you know who have similar grappling styles? You're going to laugh at this for a bit. Rousey and Velasquez, to me, have slightly similar grappling styles, which is to say there are major differences between them. Not least of which is um, the amount of ground and pound that is important for fight fights ending for Velasquez is different. Um, Velasquez doesn't move as much, but what both do, what both have in common is, first of all, they're very highly technical. I don't mean to say that they're not highly technical, but they don't get reputations necessarily. Rousey gets one for her armbar, but if you watch her role in jujitsu um, against like more credentialed, you know, pure jiu-jitsu people. She does a lot of things that we would consider mistakes, but she kind of gets away with it a little bit because what she does, and she does this in MMA too to a lesser extent, she just tries to beat you with speed. Now, she's not making a bunch of errors in speed, but she's, and he does this too. They will throw punches and advance and then turn and then shift weight and advance. All the while, they're getting you, and I've talked about this before, all the while they're getting you to play catch-up. They're constantly getting you to play catch-up. And so, uh, as a consequence, it's just hard to follow someone when they do that, especially when that, that's their game. There are guys in, in pure grappling, and not just jiu-jitsu, who will tell you, I'm just going to beat you with speed. Like, I'm going to do a technique, and no matter what you do, I have three different choices that I'm going to make from there, and I'm going to pick it instinctively because they've done it over and over and over again. And then no matter what thing you choose, they just have a series of things that they follow on with that is just natural to them. So yes, they're technical, and yes, it's planned and whatever. But when they find someone who has the ability to slow down their game, their grappling just goes away. Now, I'm not saying that would be the case for Rousey. I'm not saying that would be the case for Velasquez. What I am saying, though, is um, Verdum is interesting because what he might do is if Velasquez wants to test his guard, one of the things that Verdum is quite good at from the guard is slowing you down which is not what Velasquez wants to happen. Velasquez wants to go, not just push the pace. He wants to get past your legs. He wants to throw punches the entire time. He wants to get you to move because he's expecting certain reactions from certain things that he does. When you give him those reactions, he already knows what he's going to do next. You are playing catch-up to the things he is either doing to you or forcing you to do. Rousey is very similar in that regard. Different ways of getting there, but very similar in that regard. Um, so can Verdum slow down the movement of Alaska, slow down the offense, and control him physically? Part of me says I'll have a hard time doing that because it's not in the gi, right? Another end is punches being thrown, and Velasquez can wrestle and all that stuff. Um, and Velasquez can pass guard too, you know. Another part of me feels like, man, is that really a risk that you want to take if you're Cain Velasquez? And you're going up against some guy like Fabricio Verdum who has, you know, multiple-time world champion black belt guard and a guard now built for MMA? I don't know, man. I don't know. That's that's up to me. To me, that would be a very foolish thing, but we're going to see. We're going to see. Next, heavyweight contender, number one contender bouts. So, after last weekend, 
the next number one contender at heavyweight is now somewhat debatable. Does either Miocic, Orlovsky, or Roth will have a claim to the title shot, or should any of these three, any of these three, be matched up to decide the contender? What's your outlook and on what UFC needs to do? Um, certainly not Rothwell. Um, I would be happy with Miocic, but if they don't want to give it to Miocic, then Arlovsky is your top contender. If they wanted to give it to the winner of Miocic versus Arlovsky, I'd be okay with that. If they want to give it to Arlovsky and then have Miocic and Rothwell fight it out for the next one after that, I'd be okay with that too. Um, but your top two to me are Arlovsky and me. I can't believe I'm saying this. Your top two are Arlovsky and Miocic. Rothwell is not in the same category yet. I mean, he's got great wins. Don't misunderstand me. But it's just not quite at the same level as the other two guys. Particularly, my, I actually think Miocic is more deserving than Arlovsky, but I think Arlovsky makes a little bit more commercial sense. So, um, plus, you got to strike when the iron is hot. He could go out there and lose his next one. You never know. Heavyweight's kind of like that. Um, and then you lose the ability to promote, you know, former UFC heavyweight champion, a guy everyone knows, a guy who was the champion when the UFC was beginning to turn the corner in MMA. So, yeah, there's a lot of value there. Look, what do you think Stun Gun should? Uh, who do you think Stun Gun should fight next year? One more time, Luke. Who do you think? We asked this question last time. Um, yeah, this is funny. What are your thoughts on Verdum saying Kane thinks he's Mexican, but he's not? Well, certainly I am in no position to tell anyone whether they are or are not Mexican. Um, certainly Velasquez's heritage is about as Mexican as it's going to get. You know, I think his dad is uh, still in Mexico. Right? Um, but it is kind of funny, you know. Like, I see it go back and forth. Like, heritage and nationality... Uh, not in the technical way, like are you a citizen or are you not, but in the you know in the in the, in the more general thing, like oh, um, you know my my family is Greek or something like that, and you got a last name like Papadopoulos or whatever, but you're an American, right? Um, but you, maybe you speak Greek uh, or, or something like that. It's 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 a weird thing because. First of all, I'm not too judgmental about it or, or judgmental about it at all. I, it's not really a debate. I feel like I have a part of um, being in. However, watching from the outside looking in, um, and I, I've seen this before, uh, you know, just with, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm married to someone who came from another country and then came here. And it's very, very different to see someone who came from another country who came here who shares a national identity with someone who was born here and lived here the entire time. They are different kind of people. The, the, it, where you grow up, even if you have different, you know, sort of um, non-prevailing uh, ethnic backgrounds affecting your judgment of the world, you're still not exactly the same as you would be if you came from another place. It just doesn't happen. And I have seen, I have seen people who are from other countries come here and see people who are of like-minded hair or of, of, of similar heritage and judge them for their ability to not speak the language very well. I've seen it. I've seen it. You know, I have, I have, I have witnessed it. So like on the one hand, you know, uh, there are people who are very, very accommodating of the idea that even though you weren't born in this country, um, but you claim this country, you have reasons to claim this country, your parents, whatever, 
Um, we, we accept you for that, and we like the, the large scope of, in this particular case, Mexican identity. I bet you there are other Mexicans who might agree with Verdun. I bet you. I bet you a million bucks. I bet you a million bucks that there are, um, even, even in Puerto Rico, if you're New Yorican, it's not quite the same thing, you know? Um, there's a difference between being born and raised on the island and not. There just is. And not to everyone, but to some. And so I think that there is, I think what Verdum is saying is, it's not whether it's true or it's not true. I, 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 don't, have an ability to, I don't have an ability to decide who, who, who is or isn't authentically Mexican. And part of me wants to side with the idea that um, if, you know, if I did have an opinion, I would certainly side with Velazquez in this particular case. However, however, I think what Verdum is doing is saying that because he's appealing to a certain kind of uh, belief, probably among some portion of the Mexican population that considers being born and raised in Mexico true Mexican identity, and then the other kind, sort of a secondary version of it. I bet you there are some that feel that way. I bet you. I bet you. Not saying it's right. Not saying it's fair. Not even saying it's anything I agree with. Just saying it exists. Just saying it exists. I bet you it does. I bet you it does. Um, and Verdum can, you know, the response could be, well, Verdum, Verdum is a Brazilian who thinks he's Mexican. And maybe that's true, too, you know, to some extent. But... Um, it's just funny because one of the things that one of the advantages that Verdun has is his ability to wield the language better than than Velasquez. Again, I'm not here to say it's true. Again, I, if I'm the son of an immigrant, so to me, you know, saying I can't be that because I wasn't born and raised there tells me that that argument is kind of weak. But I bet you that in that country, in this particular case, of Lebanon, I bet you that there are people who would totally be like, "No, you're not one of us." You know, I don't care what whether your mom is or isn't from here, you know? Um, someone says, this is their words, not mine. Shamrock, clearly back on the juice. Does it, does it really matter, though? At 51, he is coming in for one final paycheck, which will, no doubt will be a big one. Suspension doesn't matter, can cover fine. Um, well, I'll have you guys know that this is something I plan on talking about. Uh, when I, I'm, I'm supposed to cover the fight next week, I plan on asking him about, you know, some of the questions surrounding his physique. Um, and Scott Coker said today, I think I saw it on Twitter, that both Shamrock and Kimbo were subject to pre-fight drug tests. Now, to what extent the, of those drug tests were, you know, uh, known about or whether they were blood and urine, I don't know the whole scope of that yet. But I'm just sort of saying it because Scott Coker said it. It's worth repeating even if that's just an incomplete portion of the story, it's what I have to share with you right now. But yes, something I plan to address because certainly you would say that um, Shamrock's in tremendous shape and in a shape that is, I think most people would agree, whether you're suspicious of him or not, a little bit uncharacteristic for a 51-year-old man. That in and of itself is evidence of nothing, but at least enough cause to maybe warrant further examination, right? Uh, promoting World Series of Fighting. Good morning, Luke. Hope you are well. Was wondering what your take was on the lack of promotion NBC gives the World Series of Fighting. Um, why would they promote it? Someone says, over the course of the NHL playoffs, I saw zero ads, and there is minimal presence on the NBC website. Why is that? Do they have some sort of marketable stars? Oh, excuse me. They do have some marketable stars, 
And I would think that since they own all video rights, how difficult is it? And why are they not investing in their own product? It's not their own product. World Series of Fighting, for the most part, I believe, pays to be on there. And I think the way they make money is from ad sales on the network. NBC is not invested in MMA at all. They're just happy to have the content because it does decent ratings. It's a live event, and someone is paying them to put it on there. NBC's not invested. Not saying they won't in the future be invested. Not saying that they will, you know, they hate it. Um, but they're not committed to it in any kind of way that that uh, Fox Sports is, and maybe even ESPN. All right. Someone says. Uh, someone's pointing out that someone says, "Well, they can't promote when you're releasing people left and right because of inactivity." That's not. It's got nothing to do with it. It's got nothing to do with it. All right, Glasgow, a go-go. Tickets for the UFC event in Glasgow are, according to Bisping, said to have sold out in 25 minutes, thus making the fastest sellout in UFC event in European history, even faster than the Irish card. What do you make of this? Is this correct? I haven't verified it, but it could be true. Regardless of who was the fastest, would you agree this clearly shows that the Scottish-UK market is on fire at this time? No. So then how do you think the UFC should capitalize on this interest and success? Certainly, what I would say is the following. Um, these are burgeoning markets. I wouldn't call them on fire, but they are growing, and they're worth, they're worth deserving of attention. If they were on fire, there would be S-loads of regional shows, and there are not. Um, there are some. There are some important ones, but there's not as many as you would think there would be for a market on fire. So, no, they're not on fire. What I think it's more attributable to is that um, partly, yes, the markets there are, are good, they are growing. That's part of it. I don't want to discount that and say it doesn't exist. It does exist. It's real and it matters. But that, in conjunction with the fact that the first time a UFC brings a product to someplace, it's usually very well received. Even in the United States, that you know, UFC has been here for how long? When they go to a new market, for example, when Jones fought Teixeira and they went to Baltimore, that did really, really well at the gate there. Really well at the gate there. Even though the U.S. houses UFC events for the majority of the time and has historically over the course of the company's existence, but they had never been to Baltimore before. So they go to Baltimore, boom, it's a big hit to say nothing of the fact that it's the first time in Scotland period. Um, yeah. If you're a Scottish uh, MMA or UFC fan, you don't get many opportunities. This is literally your very first one to go and see a show. I can see why there would be a ton of enthusiasm. The key for that is not, um, can they get strong enthusiasm the first time they go to a market? The key is, can they keep it alive? And you're seeing that the countries that get the most UFC are also the ones that become the pickiest. Brazil, U.S., and Canada. That's just how it goes. The more UFC you get, the more you're like, eh. So everyone, I saw someone in the comments being like, well, oversaturation is an American problem. Not true. You can't just take any old car to Canada anymore, can you? you got to take a real deal one for them to show up. You can't even take any old car to Brazil anymore, can you? They had, what, less than 4,000 people at the Goiana show? Goiania show, whatever how you pronounce it. Um, it's not true that you can just show up with any old thing in those countries anymore. You can't. Um, now, whether that's good or bad ratings on Fox Sports 1 is a slightly different debate. But we are talking about here is ticket sales, people showing up. Yeah, dude, Glasgow is ready for a UFC. There's no doubt about it. It'll be a big success. It'll be a great show. That's not the measure of success. The measure of success is how many times over the course of going there – can you get that kind of um, treatment? Now, I don't suspect they'll go to Scotland as many times as they go to Brazil or Canada or the U.S. Okay, fine. So you may have a little bit better consistency across that. But when we finally get to the 10th show in Scotland, let's see what that one looks like versus the first. 
The Coker Poacher. I'm not too knowledgeable about contracts, but can Bellator and Scott Coker use the Reebok deal against the UFC by creating a contract the UFC would be unable to match, thus enabling themselves to poach UFC talent, e.g. guarantee one apparel sponsor or the fighter's choice. The the matching... Um, someone says... Yeah, this is exactly right. When you, when you have a contract that matches something, you might be able to match it stipulation for stipulation. Hey, this person's going to put me on this kind of TV channel and give me this kind of show. Well, we can put you on a TV channel that does nearly identical ratings and identical demos, and we'll pay you just as much. Boom, you've matched. Now, that may not happen very often, but you understand you can sort of match one-to-one. They're apples-to-apples, more or less. But the, the key is, if you can't match apples-to-apples, are you matching apples to apples in terms of the general monetary value of the contract? So Scott Coker and Bellator and Viacom, they can't write contracts being like, well, you know what? What we'll do is we'll give you all the sponsors you want. You can have them all, blah, 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 no sponsor tax. And UFC can't match that at all in those direct terms because they have the Reebok deal. But that doesn't tell you anything because what UFC could do is say, okay, you may only get 15,000 Reebok sponsorship money. What we'll do is we'll give you more pay. Show us exactly what you made in sponsorships the last year. We'll, we'll, we'll not only pay you that, plus we're going to pay you to fight. We'll even throw extra 20 grand on top of that just to sweeten the whole deal. In other words, whatever you were going to get from Bellator from having all the sponsors you want, plus whatever Bellator is going to pay you, you see we'll just put that into your actual fight purse. right? So that way they're matching the monetary value. They're not giving you all the freedoms necessarily, but you get the same kind of money, which I suspect – you're going to see some people do what they're going to do is they're going to go to Coker or whoever, and they're going to try and get, um, you know, money. And UFC is not going to be able to match them in terms of like the use of sponsors, they're, but they're just going to come off their pockets to make their overall fighter pay bigger. It's an interesting way to raise fighter pay, I suppose, but uh, but that's likely what I expect to happen. Uh, look, any idea how USADA UFC handles prescription drugs for the legitimate recovery of an injury like Anderson Silva's broken leg? I mean, if there's year-round testing, is there a process to take things that would promote healing or bone growth during the medical suspension period? Um, my belief is that these things all have to be applied for. Like, if you're getting treatment, um, they don't have to approve the treatment for, let's say, a broken leg. I mean, the doctor's going to give you what they give you. But anything ingested medicinally... Um, to the, to the extent you can schedule it out ahead of time, and I think it's probably in your interest to do so, to then clear that with, with them, that there has to be a medical use for this, that there can be no medical alternative to this. I would, you know, um, there's probably lots of things that would fall under that. You know, I'm assuming that, look, if you get some kind of surgery, you're going to be allowed to take painkillers, right? And so there might be a window in which that would be allowed. These things, you know, surgery is scheduled in advance. You can get these things cleared. And so if those things do show up, in that period, you know that this person was cleared in advance, that, that you knew they were taking this, they were taking it for this amount of time, it stays in the system for this amount of time, and so forth. Um, but it's when you do something and don't disclose it, it's when you use it longer than you were supposed to, it's when you just wing it. So there's going to have to be a lot of coordination between the fighter and USADA, between the fighter and UFC, to make sure that anything they put into their body that's administered to them medicinally that there is awareness among all parties of what's going in, how much, how often, for how long. 
True or false? GSP gets the next title shot at welterweight if Rory loses. False. GSP, I don't think he's coming back. Said it on the MMA beat, and I stand by it. Rashad gets next shot if he beats Bader. He might. JDS gets next shot if he if Kane loses. He might. Arlovsky gets next shot if Kane wins. Probably. Is it true that Ryan that Rashad Evans is ranked higher than Ryan Bader? That can't be true. Is it true? Rashad has been off for two years. Is that that's true? I'm just gonna laugh. Oh my god. <laughs> it's true. Rashad Evans is ranked higher than Ryan Bader. That is awesome. That is awesome. Pretty great rankings. Uh, Brendan Schaub sitting it out. Look, week after week, you mentioned fighters complain but don't do anything. And here we have Brendan Schaub saying the Reebok deal isn't worth fighting for. Definitely setting an example, but also he has many more things going for him and perhaps able to do so compared to others. Definitely a step in the right direction to stand for something. Do you see others following suit? Probably not masses, but perhaps some to make it noteworthy. Yeah, you know, it's funny to see people I saw on the Reddit forums. And I like the Reddit forums. Don't get me wrong. They're 99% of the time. They're great. But I saw some people on there being like, um, well, a real fighter will just compete no matter what. You know, if someone says something like a real fighter competes no matter what, you know this person um, is the dumbest person in their town. For sure. For sure. Potentially in their county or state. Um. It's just such an incredibly moronic thing to say. Um, and no one who has any kind of real skills in this world ever says anything like that. We live in a world where you create skills. And if you do use those skills for fun, that's great. But that's not the world we live in. This is prize fighting. And when you take the prize out of prize fighting, um, you don't get nearly as many uh, interested parties. Now, I don't think we're at some sort of like tipping point where the amount of money has been so dramatically reduced that many will want to leave. I think this is probably, for the most part, an isolated case. I don't know what other streams of revenue he has. I know he has, he has the podcast, but most people don't get a ton of money from that. But maybe he does. Um, and he's probably got a few other business ventures that he's involved with. Or maybe he's invested his money in some kind of capacity or another. I don't know. But suffice to say, his shop situation is fairly unique. I doubt he's alone. But, yeah, I think a lot of guys are going to start making calculations. You know, this whole idea that they're supposed to fight for, like, honor and glory and then go home and eat ramen noodles because, you know, uh, dumbass underscore 457 on some forum thinks that, you know, that's what real fighters do. You know, meanwhile, they probably couldn't do a push-up um, is, is a remarkably, remarkably moronic thing to say. That is truly... You know, when you read the internet, that is like something you would find on like the onion. Um, <laughs> Real fighters compete for no money, says internet commenter. All right. Uh, Brian Ortega. Hi, Luke. Ortega versus Tavares was my fight of the year so far. What improvements do you think Ortega needs to make to keep moving up the rankings? And do you think he'll be a future star? Sort of already covered this, but I do think he'll be a future star. 
Someone asked me if I've heard uh, the interview with Travis Tiger yet. I have not, but I will, I will definitely listen to it. The one on uh, MMA Hour. I've not had a chance to listen to it yet. Um, should Kane be granted a rematch if, big if, he loses to Verdun this weekend, regardless of how he loses? Convincingly close decision finish. Um, if it's a four-round beatdown, no. If it's a fluke knockout or um, some kind of crazy submission that came out of nowhere after Verdun was getting his ass kicked, you know, yeah, there should be a rematch. Yeah. Uh, should commenters, should, excuse me, should commentators not share their opinion? What do you make of Cajal Pendred's comments towards Joe Rogan? He was less than pleased with his criticism, thinks he looks good in his fight, and doesn't understand how he isn't on the main car. Now, that interview I did hear. Personally, I respect that Rogan has the courage to speak his opinion. Do you agree with his criticism, and should this continue sharing his thoughts or be on the fence robot? Well, I mean, you kind of answered your own question, didn't you? Yes. If you're a commentator, it is incumbent upon you to speak honestly, and with that comes ruffling feathers. Um, doesn't mean your opinion is fact. Doesn't mean you're not going to go back and say, you know what, I could have done things differently. Doesn't mean watching a year down the road that you might not have a different feeling about the things you said. But it could also mean that, you know, you watch it again, you say, I stand by it. You watch it a third or fourth time. A year down the road, you say, you know what, I absolutely stand by it. The reality is we live in a world where people have opinions. You're not always going to like what others have to say. Plenty of people have opinions that I don't like about me or other things. Um, but what are you going to do? You're going to go and police the whole world? you got to learn to live with it. If you think you've been wronged in some kind of career way, um, Pendron has every right to speak out. Uh, I disagree with his analysis. I agreed with Joe Rogan's. But, but look, if this comes with the territory, if you want to be a good commentator, it means you have to have some – this idea that it's called uh, – I shouldn't say it's called that. But there's a professor at NYU named Jay Rosen, and he's sort of like a professor of um, media studies. And he has this, this, this argument he calls the view from nowhere. And the view from nowhere is essentially, it's a different scenario, but I'll apply it here, where news organizations, they don't weigh in on things where we have factual basis for them to do so. They just assume everything is a debate. And so here's their side, and here's their side, and we don't know which is true. Even though one side might argue the sky is blue, and another side might argue the sky is red. Well, we don't know because there's just a debate going on here rather than saying, um, you know, we, we'll listen to detractors but we are going to write our stories and present them in a way where we're speaking to objective fact. Um, you know, the, I think they have a view that if we do that, we're editorializing, but you're not. You're, you're actually sort of like editorial. You're, you're, you're giving credence to lunatics by not weighing in, um, not weighing in, but writing in a way that reflects reality. And so I think if you're asking a commentator to be like, well, I don't know who's good and I don't know who's bad, or um, I, everyone's good, you're sort of doing that view from nowhere a bit. What you want is a guy to come and say, this is good. Here's why it's good. This is bad. Here's why it's bad. And one of the things, frankly, that's missing from all combat sports commentary, except HBO Boxing, shout outs to them, is objectivity about shows. It's about objectivity about MMA fights. Like, it was kind of crazy to me, um, you know, when Fox Sports 1 was talking about the FIFA scandal when, when Seth Blatter resigned and everything, and they were hammering FIFA, even though they have a rights deal with FIFA. You know, when was the last time you ever had, and again, UFC 568 was awesome, but there's been plenty of non-awesome UFC shows. Like, they, they, it just happens. It happens to everyone. Not everyone has a good show. Not every basketball game in the NBA is good. Some are just stinkers. It's inevitable, right? It's life. Some of these live chats, 
probably blow once in a while. It's just what that's just what's going to happen. And you never ever hear them ever say on the Fox Sports One broadcast, "Well, you know what, guys, the fights just kind of suck tonight." But you will hear that on HBO. HBO, if H, Max Kellerman and Jim Lampley will hammer you if you are fighting like when when Cotto uh, fought Gil. This is a ridiculous match, and they called it as much. It was just a setup match to fight Cotto, and they said it outright. But every time there's a UFC fight, oh my god, these fights totally delivered tonight. Even if you're watching, you'd be like. Okay, well, UFC Fight Night 68 was great. But some of these are not that great. And that would be nice if you said it. Um, but, you know, but because the production is essentially controlled by UFC, um, you know, Joe Rogan is, is an employee of UFC. Mike Goldberg is an employee of UFC. Um, you just don't get that same level of candor, unfortunately. And I think it would make broadcast better because you're speaking to what the fan is, you know, seeing. Fans aren't stupid. Like, they know if they, you know, the boos don't happen – I mean, sometimes they happen when they're dumb, but they're not. Sometimes the boos are, are right on the money, and it would be nice if that was reflected in the commentary. So, look, um, you know, I guess Rogan doesn't have the license to do that. I understand that. It's part of the gig. Okay, cool. But I am glad that he is out there, and when he thinks something is bad, saying it. And when technique is poor, he's saying it. And, and the consequences of that is not everyone's going to love you. It ain't a popularity contest, man. It's, it's a, you're, you're, you have a service to provide. You are trying to articulate what people are seeing and add a dimensionality to it that helps with understanding, that helps provide context, and frankly, is a little bit entertaining. That's what your job is, man. And if you're not doing that, then what are you doing? Get off TV. You know? And I'm, so I'm glad Rogan does it. And frankly, I think he does a pretty good job of it for the vast majority of the time. Mike Goldberg is a different matter. Uh, Mike Richmond, what were your initial reactions to the two-year suspension? Also, did Richmond handle the news better than any of the other fighters caught for steroid use? People are saying they love his honesty. I guess I don't really care one way or the other about the honesty. Um, I hope you guys who are believers in hammering fighters and taking away their livelihood for two years or four, I hope you are right about deterrence. I hope. Because if you aren't, you are out here ruining lives. I know that for sure. We are going to see how much we reduce PED use in MMA with this, aren't we? And if rates of usage don't decline, we're going to have a real tough conversation with ourselves trying to reform some of these penalties, aren't we? It's always easier to go from, you know what, a one-year penalty is not enough, let's make it two. It's very, very hard to have a sense of punishment not being enough. And to then say, two years is not getting the job done. The answer isn't four. The answer is one plus other things to do to mitigate that usage. But this idea that like, well, we'll just ratchet up the penalties until we break these guys' backs. I, I don't know what the answer is. And maybe they're right. Maybe, maybe this will deter people. And if it does, okay. But until it does, I am going to at least ask the question about whether this stuff works. Now, of course, it's too early to tell. Um, but, you know, you're not going to see Mike Richmond for two years. You think this is a good thing? We'll find out. Uh, the halfies. We're almost at the halfway point of the year. Give us your half-year award for. Half-year awards are like when people who aren't married have anniversaries. 
I can't remember. I think, and I think I did that with my wife when we before we became husband and wife. But I can't remember what that would be. Like I know what our, our married anniversary is because that's the only real one. But uh, okay, best fight. I'm going to go with Ortega Tavares. Best prospect. Um, Mirsad Bektic, maybe, or Islam Makachev, or yeah, probably Mirsad Bektic. Uh, and then best fighter of the f- first part of the year. Damn, it might be Donald Cerrone. Um, if it's not Cerrone, who is it? It might it might be Cerrone. Uriah Hall, one foot out the door. Uriah Hall is going to replace Derek Brunson at the Berlin card. Okay. There are very few folks who would say Uriah has been anything other than a letdown considering his obvious talent and natural abilities. Do you believe we'll see a special moves this time out? I think he has taken the fight because the last one left such a bad taste in his mouth that he wants to get right back out there and like and erase it from his brain and erase it from our consciousness and he probably likes the matchup or whatever the case may be. Um, these usually go one of two ways, man. They either work in spectacular fashion, you know, where the guy goes out there and he'll just blast out, you know, uh, whoever they put him up against, not just Uriah Hall, but I'm saying generally as a, as a theme. And you're like, you know what? Okay, that's what I'm looking for. That's the guy who I remember. The last thing was just aberrant. Or it has the effect of if they win, they don't win impressively or they just lose and it winds up being a huge gamble, right? So, neither, so it's either like a spectacular win or a pretty dramatic fail. There's very little in between. But I wonder a little bit with Hall because I feel like the last fight was a bit of a turning point with him. I could be wrong about it. We'll see if he goes out there and wins in impressive fashion. I don't know. It's a fight pass show, so it's hard to make a big impact. But um, I feel like with the Natal fight, it was that final confirmation that we needed to be like, the dude's just kind of like this. Against some guys, he's going to go out there and he is just going to he-man flex on them. And against other guys who put up a little bit of resistance, who don't wilt under his power or his striking, um, he just kind of poses off a little bit and doesn't do the things he needs to win, even though we know he can, even though we know he's, he's got his abilities. And, uh, you know, um, so I'm, I'm a little bit concerned that even if he goes out there and just blasts them out, you're going to be like, you know what, look, that's great, man. Like, we obviously know, we obviously know you can crack skulls like no one's business. But the question is, can you crack the right skulls at the right times in your career? And and I and I wonder if he's had too many chances and come up short on that for people to be like, well, I'm just going to erase what I thought of the last performance and just sign on to this one. I, I think, you know, he, he's going to have to go on a streak and 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 he's going to have to turn a corner. Um, this is good for erasing, you know, short term things, but he's really going to have to turn a corner and beat someone of some real ability for folks to be like, OK. I get it. Like, whatever was plaguing him before is not a factor anymore. But an hour in, so let's go to the Twitter machine if we can. Uh, just got an awesome DM. Hello, are you interested in investing? Do you want to invest in Kuwait? Well, let me just give you the keys to my kingdom. Uh, let's see. Shouldn't fighters start out with Bellator or World Series of Fighting, get easier fights, try to become champ, then sign with UFC for big money? 
to the extent that that becomes a, a, an opportunity for them, that's one way you can go about it, but it may not necessarily be uh, the best way for everyone. Good question. Is UFC's doping policy banning the use of IVs during rehydration? Um, I don't know. I will find out, but I have definitely seen I've definitely seen that. Someone says, did you cringe during the Ben Rothwell post-fight interview? No, I just kind of I just kind of watched it. It was just kind of funny to watch. I didn't really cringe as much as I was like a dog looking at a can opener. Just, you know. Uh, with Aldo's and Schaub's comments, is the UFC becoming concerned? I doubt they're very concerned in any kind of like real way. Where they're like, oh my God, what's going to happen to our product? But you know, you saw Dana White coming out and making comments about the unions, brag when he was bragging about the nature of their anti-doping program. To me, that is a direct sign that they don't like some of that chatter out there and they want to put it down. But um, you know, do they feel threatened? I have a hard time believing that. We're so far like when the UFC fighters get together and then collectively sue to be reclassified as employees then you might see the UFC concerned. And if they succeed, then you're going to see the UFC really concerned. But until then, not a lot to be that concerned about. Not, not anything you can ignore, but not anything you can you know, lose sleep over. Does Pendrit need to put on a big performance? Yes, but against uh, Augusto Montano, uh, Montano it's not, that's not the guy to change perceptions. He's got to do it against somebody really, really, really good. Do you think fighters will eventually do something about sponsors? Maybe not in my lifetime, but yes. Uh, am I a bad person for badly wanting to see Kimbo versus Shamrock? Yeah, this is a funny one. I have been debating this uh, internally because the fight is so unique, you know. It's like Tito versus Bonner only like times 10. Because Kimbo and Shamrock got on like Dan Lebetard's show. You know, so like it's a bigger fight than that in terms of public intrigue or visibility. And yet, even as diminished as Ortiz and Bonner were, Shamrock and Slice are even more diminished. And so it's a fight that like athletically, I'm not sure what the meaning is or if it has any. And I wonder if I can get Scott Coker to admit it. Like athletically, like what are we adjudicating here? Because every fight is the adjudication of a dispute. I think you are better than, uh, I think I am better than you. And the other person says, well, I think I'm better than you. Well, let's fight. And that's okay. And any, any two people can do that. But you do it in prize fighting at any elite level because you're trying to decide, let's eliminate the guys who aren't the best in the world to find the one who is. Or let's eliminate the, the everyone from this group of elite fighters to figure out who is the most elite in this group if you're not in the UFC. So the best lightweight in Bellator, the best featherweight in Bellator, something like that. What does Shamrock Slice prove athletically, meritocratically? It doesn't prove anything. Um, we're, we're talking about two guys who just don't have any relevancy to the rest of the heavyweight division, even in Beltor, to make that conversation relevant. Now, maybe Slice, if he's got a little bit of juice left in, or, you know, left in the tank. Um, I don't mean steroids. I mean, like, enough ability to compete still. Um, I don't know. We're, we're going to find out what the answer to that is. He's got bum knees, and he has for a while. 
So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with that. But I do know that what the value of it is, is that it's, it's essentially a fight built for TV, right? Like if you didn't care, I'm not saying at all, but if you didn't care much about athletically what you were trying to solve for, but you needed a big TV ratings thing, what would you do? You would book Slice versus Shamrock because you're probably going to get the TV ratings you want um, or just something good. But you, you know, but you're not too concerned about that. Hey, we're going to put you know other good fights in the rest of the card, and so we'll have an overall a good, happy product that people want to see. Okay, um, so that's that's the first thing. It's like a fight entirely designed for television needs, which I understand. Here's the component where I'm a little bit struggling with. I have often made the point that like. You know, Fox Sports 1 drags out broadcasts because they have an interest in it, even though it's against the consumer experience. Um, or UFC might, you know, has way too many shows because they're trying to do something globally, even though it, it will hurt, you know, the more experienced uh, MMA fans uh, uh, experience in some, some capacity. Not entirely, but, you know, a little bit. And then I've often said that, you, sh- you know, whatever they want to do as a company is their, is their right, but you don't have to follow along with it. In other words... You don't have to align your consumer interest with the promoter interest. The two are sometimes aligned. In fact, they're often aligned. But again, like fighters, like consumers, like UFC, they're not entirely overlapping. They're only partially overlapping. So are you supposed to follow along with Kimbo and Shamrock because it's in Spike's interest or it's in Bellator's interest? Um, no, you're not. Like, I would, never, I would never tell you that. At the same time, I often don't hold Bellator to the same standard because what they do doesn't affect MMA nearly to the same extent. It doesn't have the same um, effect over the sport. It doesn't have the same importance. Uh, And when you have that little amount of a roster and you're that hamstrung, you don't have the same responsibilities to um, produce the same kind of product. It's just not realistic to expect Bellator to do all the same things that UFC does. So I'm a little bit wishy-washy on this one. I haven't quite decided where I'm at. But I often feel like there's just a lot of casual fans who just want to see this. And if Bellator is interested in anything, it is getting more than just hardcore fans to watch. You know, whether that means you should care, I don't know. But if you already care, I guess what I would say is I'm not going to talk you out of it. But, you know, athletically, which is why I watch the sport for, there's close to nothing there, you know. There's another question about nationality. That's a good one, but we've kind of already covered it. Uh, who chooses the Reebok uniform color? Luke, I'm curious as to who gets to choose the fighters' fight short colors. Um, my guess is that there's going to be some fighter input, but a lot of UFC input. You know, I don't think that there's going to be – it just seems to me totally unrealistic that UFC is going to say, well, fighters, go in there and pick whatever you like. You're not going to see two guys, for example, with the same color shorts. Now, that's the case now, right? White corner, black corner, red corner, blue corner kind of thing. But I just mean there's going to be some, I think, input from the fighters for sure. Um, But beyond that, I don't know. Beyond that, I don't know. And I have a hard time seeing how, um, again, what is the UFC trying to do with all this stuff? It's control. It's control. You know, do we think they're going to just let them fighters just pick whatever they want? You know, there's going to be some limits on that. Reebok's going to put some limits on it. I suspect there's going to be some kind of uniform limits that UFC will place on it. 
And then there'll be a couple of choices left that fighters have, and you know, maybe more than a couple, maybe a few or something like that, um, that they'll be able to pick from. But I, it just is not in the UFC's mo to just like, hey, do whatever you like. Doesn't that doesn't sound very right to me? All right. Someone says, it's refreshing to see a fighter be honest about using PEDs after getting caught. Talking about Michael Richmond. Um, is this a result of UFC's effort of making awareness about PED use to the public eye? Um, no, I don't. I think this is much more just about who Mike Richmond is and the nature of his penalty, not leaving him much wiggle room. You know, Once they catch you, you're guilty. You're guilty until proven innocent, which... You know, good luck with that. Pardon me. Connor's marketing tactics. Do you think that Connor's marketing tactics will backfire tremendously if he loses convincingly to Aldo? I can't imagine how the UFC will sell his fight after that. UFC is giving Connor unprecedented favoritism, giving him some sort of appearance at every UFC pay per view event with a ridiculous amount of TV coverage. He has more coverage than all of the UFC champions except Rousey combined. Obviously, that will change if he loses to Aldo, but I have difficulty picturing how much it will change. Let's say if he loses convincingly to Aldo, will the UFC just drop him and say you were useless to us now? No, they will not do that. In my opinion, he will get Max, he will get Max Holloway if he loses to Aldo. No, Max Holloway is going to fight someone else. But how much effort do you uh, think the UFC will put into continuing marketing him if he loses? Quite a bit. Quite a bit. He probably won't get the like, same identical push. And there will obviously be, if he gets, like I say, brutally KO'd, which I don't think is going to happen, but, you know, MMA is crazy. If, if he gets brutally KO'd, there will be, I mean, he's just going to have to eat a lot of S if that happens. Um, but I think what I would say is the following. If you're UFC, and this is the point I've made before, there's always second chances and third chances in fight sports. And, like, he can beat a lot of other featherweights, right? So there's that. So even if he loses to Aldo, um, I still favor him to win a lot of other good fights against good fighters. That's the first thing. I don't think if he loses, he's going to go on some like terrible losing streak. The other thing I would say is, and this is why I like the way the UFC has handled him. If you're a UFC and you're behind Conor McGregor, I've often talked about this before. The, like, I want to say the most important part, because that's not true. But one of the most fun and interesting and novel parts about a fighter's rise is, uh, is just that, is that when you're watching them come up. Because once they get established at a certain level, they basically sort of hover there until they decline and fall off. Now, that, that can have different swings. You know, if you're Michael Bisping, you've been a top contender at one point, and then you've fallen off into barely top 10. Okay, you know, it's not the exact same position. But you kind of hover in the division until you figure out what's happening, and then you rise back up or, or you fall off, right? It's a rise up, leveling out, and then a falling out, more or less, with different peaks and valleys. But when someone's on the come up, that's like the most interesting time in their career for me, to 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 the large extent. When John Jones was on the come up, it was crazy, and you know, Rousey entered as champion, it was different. But when she was in strike force, killing it, it was it was wild to watch. And um, same with Habib Nurmagomedov; he's had a couple bumps in the road, but you get the idea. Connor's rise to stardom is nuts and frankly unprecedented, you know, in terms of the commercial interest around him um, and, you know, the novelty of being Irish and everything else like that. 
So, um, if you're UFC and you're watching this happen, what do you lose if you go all in on them? What do you lose? You don't lose anything. You don't lose anything. Uh, or not much anyway. Because if McGregor wins, then you have invested all of this and then kaboom, he, come, he turns into a star. If he can beat the greatest featherweight of all time, I mean, you, you would say, thank God we didn't try and like timidly promote him. We went out there, balls out, and promoted this guy. And it paid off handsomely. And if he loses, are people just going to stop watching UFC? No. Is, is Ireland going to stop caring about MMA? I mean, I'm sure it won't be good, but I, I don't think it'll have that effect necessarily. Um, like I mentioned before, McGregor's good enough to beat a lot of other good featherweights. Holloway, I don't know at this point. We'll see. But the point being is if he loses, he absorbs a lot of the blame, not UFC. So if you're UFC, you have very little to lose and you have a lot to gain. Um, and I, so that's why I think if you're going to promote a guy on his rise and he's going to give you every reason to do that, and he has, um, you know, in terms of being a commercial interest, that's why I think they've done this so well, man. Just go all in. If it fails, it fails. But if it hits, whoa, you are going to have a brand new pay-per-view star in ways that is just so unprecedented, man. So unprecedented. And if there's one thing that they need, it is guys who could move units on pay-per-view because it's still a, a, a portion of the business that they rely heavily on, man. All right, this is a long-ass question, but I'll get to a little bit of it. No, it's too long. Would Gennady Golovkin's wallet take Ronda Rousey's wallet in a street fight? I doubt he makes as much money as her. She is more popular than him, you know. Um, what will MMA north of 170 look like in five years? The only championship level fighters in middleweight, light heavyweight, and heavyweight under 30 are Jones and Gustafson. With the UFC allegedly getting rid of steroids, what will these divisions look like in five years? Well, if it actually works uh, and deters enough youth that we're satisfied with, yeah, they'll be a lot younger. But five years from now, dude, I can barely figure out what MMA is going to look like five months from now. This is a weird question, but I'll answer it because it's weird. Caitlyn Jenner. This is where it gets weird. I know she's not cute enough to replace your wife, but I would love to hear your thoughts on Bruce Jenner's transformation. Happy for her. Thoughts on Ben Rothwell's post-fight interview. Um, again, it's not, you know, I didn't write a story about it. Uh, or, you know, it was cool. It was funny. Whatever. Can you see an increase in bizarre interviews that the media and UFC are promoting for fighters to maximize their personalities for these interviews? This may result in fake and cringe interviews. There probably will be some of that, but I, I doubt a whole lot. I think someone like Ben Rothwell is trying it because he's like a little bit at the end of his rope. 
um, and is just frustrated. And of his rope's a strong word. Frustrated with how things have been going for a little bit, for a big portion of his career. And so he's trying to shake things up and, and get some attention. And it worked. This is the attention business, man. It's what it is, you know. And you get attention in a lot of different ways. You get it from your fighting ability. You get it from your, your story. You get it partly from your nationality. You get it a lot from your winning or losing. But, it, you know, it's the attention business. And any way you can get it, get it. Now, let's see. McGregor. A lot of people question. There's a lot of questions about McGregor, man. A lot of people question McGregor's ability and state that he's not beat any world-class opponents. But we are now, we are not now starting to see how good the people he has beat are. He was the only person to finish Dustin, who since that loss has looked amazing. And Holloway, who just dismantled uh, Swanson. He beat on the feet and on the ground with a major injury. I know people will say that was a young Holloway, or there will be some criticism that that was a young McGregor, too, who was new to the game and big paydays yet still performed that well. Is it time we all start putting our hate and love aside and admit that McGregor is actually a serious contender in the UFC and his trash talk, although it may have fast-tracked him, he has brilliantly backed it up? I don't know who's not saying this, who you should take seriously, Right. Who is who is who at this point can credibly say McGregor's not really good, a huge featherweight. He was one when I saw him at uh when did I see him? 183? Something like that. I think I saw him at 183. What was Silva Diaz? Is that 183? Um he was huge. He did the QA for that one at before the weigh-ins. I was like, God damn. Conor McGregor is a big featherweight. Um, so, like, obviously he packs tremendous punching power. Um, he has, you know, a unique style of striking. You know, he's got a lot of things going for him. And, you know, he beat Max Holloway. I think, you know, I, I, I don't think a second fight with Max Holloway would look even remotely the same. But to your point, a win over Max Holloway is no joke. Um, starched Dustin Poirier. And uh, and so forth. Like, there's no there's no credible way you could possibly say that. Oh, you know, he's not an elite fighter. He's not. A, he's not a contender. Of course he is. Like, of course he is. Of course he is a contender. He's a contender and a serious elite one in every way. What he is not, and I'm sorry, it doesn't matter which way you want to go with this. He is not a thoroughly vetted candidate. Just not. He's just not. You can say whatever else you want about him, and I think he's tremendous. And I'm not, I don't even care at this point that he got the title shot against Aldo. It obviously makes all the commercial sense in the world. All that is cool, man. All that is cool. But he is not a thoroughly vetted featherweight. He has not answered a lot of questions about stylistic matchups that, um, that he needs to. And again, this is not to say once he gets tested, he'll get blown out by a bunch of wrestlers. Not saying that at all. He may go out there and show us his takedown defense is phenomenal. And his grappling on the ground is phenomenal. That these wrestlers can't hang with him, and they will struggle to keep him down on the ground. May, well, may very well be the case, but he has not done it yet. Right? Hasn't done it yet. Just hasn't done it yet. And so as a consequence, um, you are, you know, I don't know if being skeptical is the right way to look at it, but you have every right to say, sorry, guys. Like, um, 
you haven't answered this question yet. So it's just lingering. And he's even said he's looking forward to answering it. Cool. But this idea that we can say, well, because he's done so well, and he has, we can ignore these other questions. Nope. The questions still count. They count until they're answered. It's just that uh, he's done so many good things that I think his supporters want to say, well, he obviously can handle those other things. Well, they don't even matter. No, they matter. And until he answers them, well, he hasn't answered them. I follow a group on Facebook called Addicted to the UFC, and the question was brought up about dream cross-promotion matchups, and mine were Charles Oliveira and Shinya Aoki and Mohamed Kalabal versus Gugard Musasi. What are your thoughts on these matchups? Uh, Oliveira would wreck Aoki. Uh, and uh, Musasi, even though he's a little bit less than what he used to be, would probably be Kalabal too. Um, and what are your dream cross-promotion matchups? Askren versus Hendricks is one I want to see, big time. Um, God, really any others? Uh, Michael Chandler against any of the uh, elite lightweights. Will Brooks against any of the elite UFC lightweights. Um, Douglas Lima, any of, the, any of these top guys in Bellator. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing Liam McGeary. It's not in a crossover, but, I, but now that Phil Davis is there. I'm looking forward to seeing Phil Davis versus Liam McGeary. Um, there's just not the same amount of crossover that you can have anymore with the decline of the Japanese scene and consolidation of talent by UFC. It's just not the same kind of question that it used to be. On a scale of 1 to 10, how mad are you that Barcelona won the triple this, the treble this season and Real Madrid nothing at all? Uh, how mad am I about it? Am I mad about a team I don't care about? I'm mad that Real Madrid didn't win anything, but Barcelona. If people want to root for a terrible team run by terrible people, <laughs> be my guest. Uh, okay, the boxing model. Look, in your opinion, why do the majority of top boxers rarely ever fight each other? It seems like every fighter is an undefeated champion, but all they fight is no-name challengers. Why is it such a hassle for them to put together fights that people want to see like Cotto Canelo? Well, first of all, that's going to happen. Stevenson versus Kovalev and formerly Mayweather versus Pacquiao, name a few. Why, how they've gotten away with this for so long? Because um, a couple of reasons, I think. You know, one is sort of a cultural thing about in boxing, you know, getting guys enough of the right kind of looks to make them a star. It was kind of funny. Uh, what happened over the weekend? Oh, someone in this chat asked this question. They were like, did you see Cotto beat Gil? Uh, man, Kodo's back. It's like, how is Kodo back for beating a dude who was ridiculously and moronically outmatched from the very beginning? It doesn't prove anything. Except that what you've, and, and this was, I think, a big thing about dream success, not excuse me, dreams, pride success. Pride did have a lot of really important matchups, like Rampage Jackson versus Ricardo Arona is an important fight. You know, Fedor Lenenko versus Mikko Krokop, that was a hugely important fight. Um, Noguera versus, you know, Barnett. Like, the, there's, there's just lots. Rico versus Minotauro. Like, these are, all, these are all super important fights. And you can go over the whole list of all the major ones that they had that were really, um, you know, all the Brazilian top team versus shooter box matches and everything else like that. But what they also did was they, you know, this was a, people made this out to be an indictment on Fedor's career that, you know, yes, he did have a lot of big, important wins, but he fought a lot of guys who just 
We're there to make him look good. Okay, but that succeeded because it did make him look good. Like, there's the thing about combat sports that's weird where you can give guys fights where their guy is totally outmatched. And if he goes in there and just blows the doors off someone, all of a sudden people are like, wow, did you see that? This guy looks amazing. And I'm, I'm always like, do you have amnesia, mf Like, do you not have – have you not seen what happened to him in the past this, – this guy's career? Like, Miguel Cotto has taken a ton of damage, man, a ton of damage. Now, I don't know whether he's going to beat Canelo or not, but, like, this idea that he's, like, rejuvenated is just is – just, is just nonsense. It's total nonsense. So, um, so pull up the question here. You're asking, like, why don't guys fight each other? That's partly the reason, is that you can make yourself look good against some – if you have a strong fan base, you can make yourself look good against somebody who's a nobody. Look at the Explode Fight Series. They got soccer moms fighting, like, actual people who train, you know. And uh, Bloody Elbow did a huge thing on the Explode Fight Series, but there's some reason to believe that these guys are getting favorable matchups to look good when, you know, they're just mismatches. Now, of course, it's not the entire, you know, thing about the product, but there's some evidence to believe that might be true in their opinion. And so partly it's that, like you have to get those kinds of fights. Also, there's a bit of this, like, why won't these guys um, fight each other? It's slightly overstated as a problem. But then, the, so there's that too. So like, one, it is partly true. Um, the other problem is it's partly overstated. You, you do get a lot of really interesting matchups these days. And I think the third one, though, is that when they do happen, they happen a little bit later than we would like them. Guys like Cotto, guys like Canelo, guys like Mayweather, they have uh, – I'm not sure exactly what Cotto is doing, but certainly Canelo and Mayweather, they have their own shell companies, and more so in Mayweather's case, they have their own promotional entities. I've talked about this before. When I was showing – you know, when, 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 when Rampage – I don't know what's going to happen with him with Viacom, but when it all first came out that Bellator was putting a preliminary injunction on him and you could see the bout agreement, you could see he had zero say over when a fight is promoted and how. None. Zero. Like, that's not the case in boxing. These guys have say over how it's promoted and who they're going to fight against. They're their own bosses for the most part, even if they work for top rank or signed by top rank or golden boy. Um, if they have their own promotional company, everything is done in association with them. So it's golden boy in association with Canelo Promotions, right? They have a say over all these kinds of things. And as a consequence, they're going to pick their career the way that makes the most sense for them. Everyone got on Tyron Woodley's case for not fighting Hector Lombard. You know who handled that situation correctly? Tyron Woodley. That's who. He realized that the Hector Lombard fight, for any number of reasons that they train together, is not a good reason. But beyond that, that they may not necessarily do hit for him with his career what he wants it to, and it may even be a tough fight. Let me take another tough fight that's a little bit more in line with my interest and my skill set and see if I can't still advance. That's called being smart. That's called being smart. I understand fans don't have to like that. You know, fans can be like, okay, well, that's great for you, Tyron. That's not great for me. And they can push back on him. And that's why I think eventually some of these guys relent. But this idea that, like, uh, and it doesn't, you know, these guys never fight each other is not true. They do. Um, sometimes it's slower than, than, it would, than it should happen. I think for all those reasons, they have their own protections in place. And then third, there's a lot of extra padding going on to make them look a certain way to make them appealing. Um, well, I've been a follower of this live chat for a long time and I've often noticed you make hilarious hip-hop references. At first, I assumed you were mocking rap because you disliked it, but after some thought, I'm starting to think you actually might be a fan. Yes, of course I am. Especially Southern rap artists. Are you a fan of the genre? And if you are, my artists, any artists in particular? Well, I am old and I am white, so I do not present my tastes in any way to be that which you should like. But 
Um, I cannot listen to modern rap at all. I just can't listen to it. I have tried, man. I have tried. Um, you know, I sound like an old fuddy-duddy who doesn't know Jack S. That's fine. But, man, when you grow up, when you grow up listening to, like, the East Coast, West Coast battles, and when you were out, when Ready to Die came out, you just have a certain view of what hip-hop is supposed to sound like. So if you're not a lyricist, I got nothing to do with you. I like Run the Jewels. Someone mentioned Run the Jewels. I love Run the Jewels. I saw them at the 930 Club. Um, I actually tried. Well, I've been to, uh, see, I saw Outcast at the Hampton Coliseum back after, I want to say, Equimini came out. Uh, but maybe that's not true. But I did see him at the Hampton Coliseum. Seen Mob Deep. Um, I've seen. Well, I've seen a concert. I've seen Jay Z in concert, but that sucked. Most rap in concert sucks. I've seen the Wu Tang Clan concert that sucked. Although I love them. Um, who else is on my playlist? Yeah, basically, if you were like a big deal in the late '90s, early 2000s, mid to early, mid to late '90s, early 2000s, then it's great. But like, like, like Wiz Khalifa, Chief Keef, even like other stuff like Schoolboy Q or or uh, ASAP Rocky. I just can't get into it, man. Kendrick Lamar's pretty good, but um, still, even, even with Kendrick Lamar, it's like he's a lyricist, but I don't know. It just doesn't have the same punch to me. All right, we'll, we'll do one more true false and we're out of here. Uh, Habib would be a top 10 welterweight if he moved up. Maybe, but not much more than that. Just because of the size issue. Uh, Demetrius Johnson beats Dillashaw. Maybe. But he doesn't beat Cruz. UFC 189 does over 800,000 buys. False. World Series of Fighting is still in business by end of 2016. Maybe. Rampage fights again in the UFC. I'm going to say a false, but a qualified one, because I just don't know what's going to happen with him. Uh, and then Deontay Wilder fights this weekend. Okay. We have to get out of here. I want to thank everyone for watching. This will be up on iTunes and SoundCloud. Don't forget to subscribe. You can listen to this on podcast, you guys. Got a better microphone this time. Um, we'll have lots of coverage tonight, starting all the way through the weekend at UFC 188. Um, you can follow me on Facebook, facebook.com slash Sports, On Twitter, at Thomas. Email me at luke.thomas at sbnation.com. Don't forget to share this whenever you hear it. And until next time, stay frosty.